0: Welcome to the James River Church podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor David Lindell, Executive Ministry Pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. We're back in our series, Times Two. Who's loving Times Two? How great is this series? (laughs) The life of Elisha, and it's powerful. We're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 6 this morning with perhaps one of the most shocking stories in the entire Old Testament. And I'll tell you that what we're gonna read is unsettling. And it should be. And it speaks to the moment that we are in, in history. It speaks to the moment that we are facing as a world. In 1947, A group of scientists, including Albert Einstein, got together and they developed a system to warn the world of a doomsday event. Their purpose in coming together was to convey the urgency of the moment to people around the planet to wake people up, or as they put it, to frighten mankind into rationality. And they developed something called the doomsday clock. And the purpose was for people to understand how close humanity was to a doomsday scenario. In 1947, they set the clock, but every year since then, a group of scientists gather once again at the beginning of each new year, and they adjust the clock according to what is happening globally. And as they adjusted, the clock since 1947 has ticked closer to midnight. And at the beginning of 2023, they gathered to set the clock again. And with war breaking out between Russia and Ukraine, the threat of nuclear weapons, the scientists set the clock at 90 seconds to midnight. And that was before war in Israel broke out. Jesus is coming soon. Nobody knows the day. Nobody knows the hour. But Jesus is coming soon. And when we watch the turmoil around us in the world, it should not cause fear, but it should induce urgency. It should cause us to go the time is short. Jesus is coming back. Our world is on the brink. And we've got something that the world needs to know. And the passage that we're going to look at in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7 today gives us some guidance on how we respond to a lost and dying world. I want to look at it with you beginning in verse 24 of chapter 6. Sometime later, however, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army and besieged Samaria. As a result, there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver, and a cup of dove's dung sold for five pieces of silver. There's war. There's... An approaching army that has surrounded the city, starving the population. And Samaria in Israel is ruled by a wicked king. And there's famine and there's hunger. And from the moment I read this story this week, I thought about another type of famine. A worse famine. Worse than a donkey's head being sold for 80 pieces of silver to hungry people. Amos chapter 8. Verse 11 says, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. So today I want to speak to you from the subject, America in desperate need of awakening. Because the enemy, just like. The enemy approached Samaria and surrounded it and attacked it and besieged it. The enemy has surrounded our nation. And the enemy is attacking. And when the enemy's attack is not countered with truth, when people don't respond or seek the Lord, what happens is the enemy lays siege and he induces a starvation. And the people of America are starving to death spiritually. America is facing a famine that is greater than any point in our nation's history. And the stats that I'm going to read you speak to how catastrophic the situation really is. In the last 20 years, drug overdoses in the United States have risen Suicides reached an all time high in 2022. I will tell you that the last year on record with the CDC regarding abortions is that people in the United States, just the United States, in 2020 aborted 620,000 babies. All of this, while Pornhub is now the fourth most visited website in the United States. More than Instagram, Netflix, Pinterest, and TikTok combined. And that's one pornography website. Upwards of 80% of American men viewed pornography in the last year. 43% said they viewed it in the last seven days. Marriage rates are dropping. Almost 80% of young adults ages 18 to 29 say it is now fine for a couple to live and sleep together before marriage. So it should be no surprise that America has more children growing up in single-parent homes than any other nation on the face of the earth. I want to say something to the single parents in the room. Your job is doubly hard. But God, regardless of what the story is, you need to know this, that God sees you, that God cares about you, that God is able to work in your home powerfully through your godly influence in the life of your child. God cares about you. Cares about you. But in America, in the United States, 25% of kids grow up in a home without their biological father. All of that, well, since 2007, the number of adults who don't affiliate with any religious belief system has doubled. America is in a famine. America is in desperate need of awakening. And as Christians, we have a responsibility. As Christians, it's not our job to stand on the sideline and point a finger and go, isn't this terrible? Our job is to jump in and to say, God, we have a responsibility to the people who surround us. And there's a response you're calling for from us. And in Second Kings, chapter six and seven, we get three responses that are the call that mobilize us to reach a lost and dying world. And the first response is this, an answer for the hopeless. Look at this in verse 26. One day as the king of Israel was walking along the wall of the city, a woman called to him. Please help me, my lord the king. He answered, if the Lord doesn't help you, what can I do? I have neither food from the threshing floor nor wine from the press to give you. But then the king asked, What is the matter? She replied, this woman said to me, come on, let's eat your son today. And then we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we cooked my son and we ate him. And the next day I said to her, okay, kill your son so we can eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard this, he tore his clothes in despair. I think all of us need to grapple with the fact that that is no more desperate than the plight of our neighbors, the plight of our coworkers. Because the people you know who don't know Jesus are looking for an answer. And it's eating them alive. And the king... He says, what do you want me to do? So I don't know if he realizes or not, but the people in Israel right at this very moment are living in the hellish reality that Moses prophesied they would live in if they rejected the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 28, on the edge of the promised land, Moses said to Israel, if you don't walk with him, if you don't seek him, if you don't pursue him, if you don't honor him... Enemies will surround you and they will besiege you and you will resort to cannibalism. Moses said that. You can read it. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And now they're living in the wake and the wake of their sin. It's the horrible reality that they now inhabit. Because the people are not ser- serving the Lord or seeking the Lord. Who are they going to look to? Who's this lady calling up to the wall, on the wall, who's she looking to? Because they're not looking to the Lord, they're looking to a backslidden politician. Who should they be looking to? God! (laughs) Not a trick question. God! They should be looking to God. But instead, who are they looking to? The government. One of the marks... Of a society in desperate need of awakening is when people have more hope in the government than they do in God. When they're looking for a politician that's gonna turn things around. When they're looking for a political party that can save the day. This is the situation in Samaria, a city besieged by the enemy, starving to death, resorting to cannibalism, and they're looking to this guy. Can I tell you that no politician, no political party, no platform is the hope that you need or America needs? What we need is we need the sovereign God, the creator of heaven and earth, to provide the answer for the desperate situation we find ourselves in. (laughs) Praise God for people who serve. Praise God for senators and congressmen. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus, for people who serve. But they're not the answer. They're not our hope. They're not the Savior's. And so we've got to get our eyes off of that and get our eyes on him because that's where the answer is found. That's where hope is found. And can I tell you, we have the answer. You have the answer. The answer for addiction is Jesus the answer for marriages and the destruction, disintegration of the household or the nuclear family in the United States, oh, it's Jesus. For those who are helpless and struggling with suicidal ideation, it's it's Jesus. It's Jesus. There is nothing you can name under the sun for which the answer is not found in the name of Jesus. It's found in Jesus. What I'm telling you is we have the answer, Okay. The king says, what am I going to do for you? He knows the Old Testament. He knows the scriptures to some degree, and yet he can't find the answer. We know the answer. The answer is found in Jesus, and there are people all around you, and they're desperate to know the answer. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. Always be ready, but do this with gentleness and respect, This is why you need to know your Bible. This is why you need to be in Scripture. This is why you need to hear the Word of God taught. Why what you're doing today is so important. This is why you need to be in a life group. Because the more you're in God's Word, the more you hear God's Word taught, the more you're discussing God's Word with other people, the more ready you're going to be to give an answer for the hope that people desperately need. You're going to be ready. And you need to be ready because our world desperately needs you to tell the story that you know. And one of the other truths from this passage is, unless you are walking with Christ, when famine hits your life, you will be helpless and hopeless. you got to be close to him. you got to be seeking him. But not only do we have the answer, the second response is this, faith in the face of blame and unbelief. We're going to see God wants to do something about their situation. God wants to help them. God wants to rescue them. But in the middle of a siege, in the middle of a famine, what the enemy loves to do is he loves to create mindsets in people that are blockers for breakthrough and blessing. He loves to create mindset. And what's the first mindset? Blame. Look at this in verse 31. May God strike me. This is the king of Samaria. May God strike me or even kill me if I don't separate Elisha's head from his shoulders this very day, the king vowed. Elisha was sitting in his house with the elders of Israel when the king sent a messenger to summon him. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, a murderer has sent a man to cut off my head. When he arrives, shut the door and keep him out. We will soon hear his master's steps following him. While Elisha was still saying this, the messenger arrived and the king said, all this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? The king is not looking to God. The king is not seeking God. The king is not walking with God. And because he's not walking with God, He's given the devil a foothold in his heart, and it manifests itself in a mindset that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. When you read that, you're like, how is that connected to the... Huh, it doesn't make sense. He blames God, and he blames the Word of God, i.e. the prophet of God delivering the Word of God. Why does he do that? Because it's always easier to blame God than it is to look in the mirror. It is always easier to say, well, God doesn't want to do it. God doesn't want to help. God doesn't want to deliver. God doesn't want to bless. God doesn't want to heal. It's always easier to blame God than it is to look in the mirror. It's always to say, easier to say, God must want us to suffer. God must want us to be in this, situation. he doesn't want to deliver people. He doesn't want to bless people. He doesn't want to help people. He wants us to experience this And when you talk to someone who embraces a mindset of blame, anyone who talks about the miraculous power of God or celebrates the miracles of God is labeled a purveyor of false hope. And you're going to get people's hopes up. You, you, keep, you keep, keep sharing testimonies like that. You know, not everybody experiences what they experienced. So you're going to, you know what? I mean, I think that could turn people away. Better to just be quiet about it. Better to not say anything. You know, if God heals somebody, just... I mean, that's great. Just don't talk about it, okay? Why? Because you're labeled a purveyor of false hope. Because when God gets the blame, it makes hearing about miracles intolerable. When God gets the blame, then you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to hear about it. That's where the king is at. I don't want... Elisha reminds me of a deliverance I haven't experienced. He reminds me of a miracle I haven't received. I would rather take off his head than hear any more from him. Why? Elisha is getting the blame. Here's the thing. Does that stop Elisha? What do you think? Does it stop Elisha? Look at verse 1. Elisha replied, listen to the message from the Lord. I got another one. This is what the Lord says. By this time tomorrow in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost one piece of silver and 12 quarts of barley grain will cost only one piece of silver. In the face of blame and threats, Elisha refuses to stop speaking in faith. In the face of people saying, you better be quiet. I'm going to end you. I don't want to hear any more about it. Elisha says, oh, I can't. I can't. (laughs) Because God's going to do it. Because God is going to provide. Because God is going to rescue us. Because God is going to save us. Notice he doesn't argue with the king. He doesn't pick a fight with the king on social media. He didn't do that. He just keeps speaking in faith. He just keeps saying what God has put in his heart. He just keeps saying what he knows is true. We've got to be people who speak faith in the face of blame and trust that the same God who healed before will heal again. Save before, save again. Restore before, restore again. The second mindset, though, is unbelief. Look at verse two. The officer assisting the king said to the man of God, that couldn't happen. You ever heard that before? That couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. Now, can we just start by saying, that's not a smart thing to say. (laughs) It's just not smart. (sighs) But Elisha replied, you will see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. In a city where people are so hungry, they're losing fortunes over donkey's heads, where they're haggling over dove poop to eat. Elisha says, you know what? By this time tomorrow, you're going to be able to get flour and barley at Walmart for the everyday low price you used to expect. (laughs) Tomorrow. That sounds crazy, except that God can do it. Can I tell you, God doesn't have a problem today. There are no problems with God today. He didn't wake up this morning and go, oh, it's November 5th. I hate this day. It's so hard. He didn't do that. There are no problems in heaven today. We've got problems. Heaven doesn't have any problems. We've got problems, but God doesn't have any problems. And This is a case study in two perspectives. Because there are two people in two verses. One is a politician and one is a prophet. One is dealing with figures and what he can see on a physical plane. And the other is dealing in faith. But I want you to notice unbelief sounds very plausible. The official sounds very credible. He sounds very sophisticated. He sounds like a guy who knows. He sounds like, you know what? This is rational. Come on, Elisha. (laughs) Let's make sense of this. Even if God, I mean, let's get crazy here and say he opens the windows of heaven. (laughs) Even if he did that, he couldn't do what you're saying. Very sophisticated, very credible, very rational. But anyone who chooses unbelief makes no room for the miraculous power of God. And... When you choose unbelief, you miss out on the miracle that God wants to do in your life. Because God doesn't respond to unbelief, except to push back. He responds to faith. He responds to faith, but when you give into unbelief, you miss out on the miracle. When you say, you know what? I don't know about tithing. I mean, that first 10% and God doing more with the 90% that's left over. I don't know about giving to season of giving and what you're saying about, hey, sow generously, reap generously. I don't know about all that. So you miss out on the miracle. You miss out. You miss out on what God would want to do in your finances to bless you. You miss out. Say, well, I don't know about, you know, I know my neighbor doesn't know Jesus, but I just, I'm a little concerned. I don't know. You know, you, you, we talk about God preparing the hearts of people to receive the good news of the gospel. I just don't know about that. I, I'm just not sure about. So you miss out on seeing what God would do through you in one conversation, one invitation. You miss out. Well, I just, you know, I, I don't really want to step into the aisle because, you know, it's like, I just don't know if I want to do that. And so you miss out. Miss out because you Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and and he lifts you up. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And that unbelief is really just an evidence of pride and a lack of humility to say, God's way bigger than me. He can do way more than I can even possibly imagine. So of course he could do this, Elisha. Of course. Unbelief chooses to be an evaluator and a spectator instead of a participator. You know what, I'm just going to, I think I'm going to wait and see how all this pans out. I'm going to see how it all works. I'm going to watch and just, I'll hang back and and I, I don't know. You know, Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the greatest theologian in American history, definitely labeled that way by many, wrote this. Those who cannot believe the work to be true because of the extraordinary degree in the way it is happening should consider how it was with the unbelieving ruler in Samaria who said, look, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this really happen? Elisha said to him, behold, you will see it with your eyes, but you will not eat of it. I would encourage those who sit back and watch, thinking it's more wise to watch and analyze rather than to participate, because they are waiting to see how things turn out. To see if what is happening is making any real difference in the lives of people, to consider Whether this will justify themselves not experiencing and recognizing the powerful presence of God when he wonderfully and graciously comes to us. It is likely that many people who are waiting don't know what they are waiting for. If they wait to see a work of God without difficulties and stumbling blocks, it will be like waiting for a fool. At the water in a ri- for the water in a river to run by before they decide to cross. A work of God without stumbling blocks is never to be expected. For offenses will inevitably come. There have never been any great demonstrations of God's power in the world without many difficulties attending it. There will always be reason to say, "I'm going to wait." But if you walk by faith, not by sight, you'll jump in. Because that's when the river crosses. That's when provision breaks through. That's when healing breaks out. That's when salvation happens. Step out. So we respond with faith in the face of blame and unbelief. But also number three, we respond with readiness to share the good news. Look at this in verse three. Now there were four men with leprosy sitting at the entrance of the city gates. Why should we sit here waiting to die? They asked each other. We will starve if we stay here. But if the famine, but with the famine in the city, we will starve if we go back there. So we might as well go out and surrender to the Aramean army if they let us live so much better. But if they kill us, we would have died anyway. So at twilight, they set out for the camp of the Arameans. But when they came to the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army To hear the clatter of speeding chariots and the galloping of horses and the sounds of a great army approaching. The king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptians to attack us, they cried to one another. So they panicked and ran into the night, abandoning their tents, horses, donkeys, and everything else as they fled for their lives. When the men with leprosy arrived at the edge of the camp, they went into one tent after another, eating and drinking wine, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and hid it. Finally, they said to each other, this is not right. This is a day of good news, and we aren't sharing it with anyone If we wait till morning, some calamity will certainly fall upon us. Come, let's go back and tell people at the palace. So they went back to the city and told the gatekeepers what had happened. Okay, people are hungry. People are hopeless. They're desperate. And God brings miraculous deliverance. But even though God has supernaturally provided a way out of their situation, it still requires somebody to go and share the good news. We serve a God who saves. We're called to go. We serve a God who heals. We're still called to testify of his healing power. We serve a God who delivers, but we're still to be the mouthpieces of his deliverance. To a lost and hurting world. And notice the people that God chooses to be the ones to share the good news. Four men with leprosy. Biblically, people with leprosy were the lowest of the low. They were outcasts. They were the people you did not want to be around. They were the exact last people. You would assume that God would choose, but he providentially positions them to be sharers of the good news. And some of you are listening to me today, and this is your thought on all of this about sharing the good news. David, if I was like you, then I would definitely do that. If I was like you, I'd talk to people. If I was like you, I mean, if i had grown up in a Christian home, I mean, your dad is Pastor John. Get over yourself, man. Like he, you you can definitely share the good news. I can't share the good news. Hey, if I had the if I had gone to seminary like you have, then I could share the good news, but I I I, I didn't do that. If I had even gone to Bible school, I, I could share the good news. If I had the library you had, I could share the good news. If I had this or I had that, I could share the good news. And on that basis, you excuse yourself, but you are not excused. You're not excused from the mandate and the task that God has set before you. You're not excused. Okay, we're going to do a little poll in here. Every campus, you get to participate in this. Who was the captain of your sports team in high school or college? You were the captain of the team. Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, raise your hand. Okay, that's awesome. Don't, don't. You're the captain. You're the, raise your hand, okay. Okay, um, who graduated with honors? High school or college? You gra- Oh, wow, we got a lot of those. This is awesome. All the campuses. Smart crew. Smart crew. Okay, who graduated with honors. Um, let's think about this. Who, who was All-State or All-American? You were All-State or All-American in your sport? Oh, wow. That's awesome. Love that. Who was, who was class president in high school? You were class president. Love that. I've got amazing news for everybody who their hand. God can use you too. He can use you too. He's going to have to work a little bit harder to do it, but he can definitely do it. Again, he's the God of miracles. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians this. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Oh, God loves using anybody and everybody who will say, yes, I'm available. Oh, yes, use me to share the good news. Oh, yes, I'll get in the way of people on the pathway to hell, and I'll say, not on my watch. God wants to use you. God wants to work through you powerfully. God loves to take ordinary people and do the extraordinary. He loves it. He puts his glory on display. And yet, some of you are thinking okay, if I try to share the good news, what if I fail? What if I mess it up? What if I push them away? They're already away. You got nothing to lose. Plus, you're not the one who saves; God does. Your responsibility is obedience. You know the the biggest reason that most Christians don't share the good news is not because they're unqualified, not because they feel like they're going to fail. The biggest reason they don't share the good news is that they're too focused on themselves. They're thinking about their agenda and their schedule. They're thinking about their needs and what they want God to do in their life. And God loves to do things in your life. But you're on this planet in this moment on assignment. You're not here on accident, you're here on purpose for a purpose and the primary reason God has you in this moment is to bring him glory by pointing people to Jesus that's your primary calling to tell a lost and dying world there's good news if your city was starving people were were bartering over the heads of dead animals If people were giving away massive amounts of money for a cup of bird poop so they had something to eat, and you knew that within walking distance, there was all the food that they could possibly need, would you tell them? If people in your city were on the brink of starvation, and the elderly were begging, on every corner. And moms were fighting over whose son to boil and eat next. And you knew there was food just around the corner or walking distance away. Would you tell somebody? Yes! You would tell them you would tell them, oh, no, no, you don't need to do that. You don't need to live that way. You don't need to walk that way through life. God, there's, there's provision there. There's food there. Can I tell you, you have the best news in the world. You're carriers of the message of hope that answers every need, that is light in the darkness, that would rescue anybody and everybody from whatever they're facing. You have it. Go. You have it. You have it. You have it. You have the best news in the world. And your family members and your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends and your acquaintances and your boss and your state and the United States of America will only experience the awakening it so desperately needs and they so desperately need when we become active carriers of the good news that's the that's the way it happens you got to take the responsibility to watch God work through you we've come to this passage at a, a timely moment we're weeks away from Christmas I mean yesterday all the stores are playing holiday music I don't know how they get away with that but they do the world is singing our songs The world is singing our songs. They're thinking about our story. It's the moment when people are most open to responding to the good news of the gospel. Can I tell you, people are ready to hear what you have to say? We just had the October 31st party, it was massive at every campus. And we did this dance party in the auditoriums for little kids. And at the end, there was a gospel presentation, and walking the halls afterwards, came up on one of our connect centers where they could get a Bible and there's a guy in his early 50s and he approaches the lady working at the connect center and he says, can I have a Bible? And she says, well, the, uh, yes, the Bibles are for people who made the decision to follow Jesus in the auditorium. He said, I did that. I, I heard the message. I raised my hand. I prayed the prayer. I did that. Come on. God is saving people. God is Transforming people's lives. And statistically, we're seeing more people saved at James River than every, ever in the history of the church, right now, right now. And it's not because of an improved methodology, it's not because of new tactics on our part, it's not because we got really clever all of a sudden, it's because people are desperate for hope. They're desperate for the message you have, they're empty and they're hungry, they're living on the scraps and the dung of the world. And they need the people of Jesus to rise up and be Jesus' people, be his hands and feet. The wind of the Spirit is at your back, okay? The wind of the Spirit is at your back in a historically unprecedented way. God is setting the stage for a great awakening to sweep this nation, but guess what? We've got to be participators, not spectators. We've got to be carriers of the good news of the gospel. They know something is missing in their lives. They just don't know what. And you can be the one who tells them. Don't be fooled by the facade of self-reliance or self-confidence. Every nun needs to hear the, the message that you have. Here's the thing. God is true to his word. He's the God who not only talks about deliverance, he's the God who delivers. Look at the end of this passage. So everything happened exactly as the man of God had predicted. When the king came to his house, the man of God had said to the king, by this time tomorrow, the markets of Samaria, in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost one piece of silver and 12 quarts of barley grain will cost one piece of silver. God does what he says he will do. And he wants to do it through you.